Hey, hello, how are you? This is a show for everyone else. Instead of going after top 1% of the world, we dedicate this podcast to celebrate the lives of the unsung heroes and self-made artists. From a negotiation context, you know, our approach is really based on human nature response. You know, being able to size somebody up and then being able to tell how they're going to react just because they're a person, not because of their race or not because of the language they speak or the culture they come from, but just because of natural human nature responses, how do I use that to inform my communication path with that person? You know, we use hostage negotiation techniques to solve business negotiation challenges. So the you know bringing those same the same communication techniques where you're constantly building rapport and building trust even with a hostage taker yes or a barricaded suspect and then how that leads you to a place where you don't have to compromise your position to make a deal. There's been different times where we've been at each other's throats over different things, you know, this uh, business decision or the way that we're handling a client or the way that we're executing certain things, which at those times, I think our foundational relationship as father and son is what kept us together in a, in a lot of ways. Being emotionally intelligent is also very closely tied to success. And that's success in business, that's success in your personal life, and also in negotiation. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Hi, everyone, FaceWorld podcast listeners. I'm super thrilled that you're listening to a brand new episode I'm here with Brandon Voss, who is the director of operations for the Black Swan Group. So the last name Voss may sound familiar to you guys, and also the company, the Black Swan Group, is also familiar because I've interviewed Brandon's dad, Chris Voss, twice on the show already. So Brandon, I'm so thrilled that you're here and uh, you're you're funny and you're you're very charismatic as well, just like your dad. So thank you for joining me. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. I guess I guess I'm a, I'm a benefit of good genes. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed. So, I first of all, you know, I think a lot of the li- listeners may be wondering, especially people listening to this episode or familiar with really your work and your dad's work are wondering, what is that dynamic like? I mean, I'm sure people ask you this all the time. So, how do you usually respond to that? What is it like to work with your dad? Well, I, I think probably what a lot of people imagine, especially since you know we 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 work in the negotiation space, I think they probably imagine that behind closed doors, that my father and I have very sophisticated conversations that should probably be archived somewhere so that people can study them, right? Because of the, the negotiation skills and the battle back and forth, and and that's probably not it at all. Uh, unfortunately, I will say when it comes to family. Uh, at times, keeping your poise and, and sticking to your negotiation skills is 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 rather difficult. So I will admit there there have been times when 
our conversations have whittled down to just a, an argument over who's right and who's wrong. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, I mean, it's we have a lot of fun working with each other. And, you know, our conversations, I think, I think these days are probably a lot more productive for two reasons. And, and one is, is probably because I'm older and I'm, I'm more experienced. I'm not the same stupid kid that I was when I, when I, when we first started working together. But then also in addition to that, you know, he moved to the opposite coast. We were both living in the DC area and he moved out to LA about, uh, three, four years ago. And, you know, they, what, what's the phrase, right? Distance makes the heart grow fonder. Right? And it's usually in relationship to, you know, spouses and things, but, you know, even with, for a father and son relationship, uh, we, we appreciate when we get to spend time together much more these days, because, you know, we only see each other when we're working, when we're doing training. So the conversations don't, don't get as heated these days. I think they're probably much more productive. <laughs> mm, I, I love that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot, in case some people listening to this don't know who your dad is, your dad is the, and actually you co-authored, uh, together, created a book called Never Never Split the Difference. And of course, it's about negotiation and that's the space you're in. In fact, um, I saw the book, both audio and the text version to be, you know, absolute top ranked in its category. And I was really thrilled to see that. And also some of my friends and also guests who have appeared on the show repeatedly told me that Never Split the Difference is the number one most gifted book uh, that they've you know, given to their friends and colleagues. Yeah, no, that's, that's, and I, and I appreciate that. Thank you very much for, for recognizing that. And, and, and while I'm not officially a co-author, when you look at the book cover, I, you know, Chris did a, you know, my dad made a, made a really nice uh, gesture in the acknowledgements in regards to, to our, to, to my involvement. But even, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Tall Ross who's, who's the guy who is the real, the real writer behind the project. I mean, the, the brain trust, if you will, comes, you know, a lot from my father, from Chris and, and myself. Tall is the one that put the words on paper. And I think, I think the guy's a genius. You know, I, I don't, I don't think the book would be what it was without him. You know, a lot of people don't know that we went through several writers before we got to Tall. And and I'm glad we had the experience of going through several writers because I think if we were if we were put on to tall early on in the process, we would look back on it and say, "Yeah, hey, writing a book is easy. You know, you just you, you you get an author, you tell them a couple things, and they 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 put it together." And uh, having gone through the struggle really made us appreciate what tall brings to the table. And it, it was a it was a fun process. Tall actually came and he, he stayed at my house here in uh, in Maryland. For uh, for two days, he stayed stayed in our guest room. Uh, when I say our, you know, my, me and my fiance Maya, you know, he interviewed Chris and I for two straight days in in my kitchen, and he had recording equipment set up all over the place. I think you know, I think he had seven different recording devices that he was using, and and we just, I mean, like 16, 18 hours for two days in a row of just like interview style breaking it down, you know, uh, walking him through our instruction and, and a lot of different ideas. And he just, he basically just stayed quiet and just, and asked a few questions here and there and, and kept the momentum going. And then he went home, right? He spent two days with us and then he went, went back to New York. And a couple months later, he started sending his chapters. And so, you know, that he, he made the writing process, not only enjoyable, but I mean, what he brings to the table and his ability to, to tell the story through 
just, you know, being able to write it down. It's one thing to tell a story verbally as a speaker. You know, Chris and I both speak. It's another thing to be able to put it on paper. And when people read it, they have trouble putting it down. And that, you know, I, I think Tall gets, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for that. So, you know, I'm very thankful that, that we got to work with him. Wow. What, what I really enjoy meeting your dad in person and then talking to you for the first time last week is something really profound, which is that you both are such thankful people that you give credits to other people. You really appreciate the people that you have in your lives, even to be honest, as small as the gesture of even putting you on the show and then you thank me for it. But I think this is the type of message I really want to spread because you know, there are a lot of people who are either privileged or, you know, come from a wealthy background. And I think that what's lacking these days, you know, it's all about taking credits for things for people, but it's not about, you know, people become less thankful and, and acknowledging the things that other people did. And that's what that's what make, makes a huge difference. I think the reason why Tall Raz was able to work on the book in this way, I think is because you and your dad enabled him to do so with that, with that trust that you have instead of dictating creatively, oh, you should do it this way. You should say it that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think in, in an effort to not go too far down the rabbit hole of, of just life and general society, right? But I, I agree with you 100%. I think people are are much more worried in general these days about, you know, the credit that's due to them. And, you know, I, I think some of that's human nature. You know, it's interesting, you know, the being in the, the industry that we're in and, and taking a, a different look at life. And, and we see people through a different different prism now. At least I, I know I do. And a lot of that's because of my father. But from a negotiation context, you know, our approach is really based on human nature response. You know, being able to size somebody up. And then being able to tell how they're going to react just because they're a person, not because of their race or not because of the language they speak or the culture they come from, but just because of natural human nature responses, how do I use that to inform my communication path with that person? And so staying on that same front of human nature, I think it's, 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 with, it's within us at some capacity to want to receive credit. And I think you know at times we get overboard right, as people. And, and I agree with you. I think it's I think it's important to be thankful. And at the end of the day, nobody does anything by themselves. You know, everybody's everybody's had help somewhere from somebody, even if it was just a little bit of help. Right. Even if it's, you know, it's somebody opening the door for you to get in the building of your first job, you know, whatever it is, you know, somebody helped you along the way. And, and those people deserve, you know, they deserve credit too. And, and we have a great relationship with tall. I mean, last time Chris and I were in New York, we took them to our favorite steak place, Wolfgang's at, I believe it said like 33rd and park or something like that. You know, we, we were talking about potential new book ideas and, you know, one of the things we, we had a great relationship with tall and, and he's been very honest with us about kind of what he thinks our approach to both business and to, you know, a future publication should be. And and that's been extremely valuable, especially since he's not directly in the business, right? He's on the outside looking in. And I think a lot of that is predicated, you know, him wanting to be that upfront with us and, and be very candid. I think it goes back to the thankfulness thing. I think he does, he does feel that and, and he also appreciates it as well. Mm. That's awesome. I just just like the way that I've developed a relationship very differently using 
podcasting rather than what I call friends or connections by proximity, right? You work in a full-time job. You may or may not connect with the people around you, but because they're there, you're thinking, you know, why not? I mean, granted, I did. I mean, I appreciate so much of some of the colleagues who have stayed with me and we've developed really deep in our relationship. But in general, I think people get lazy, don't really seek out that relationship, that partnership. And I I mean, I we would all be so thrilled if you guys partner on another book while there's still so much to learn and to digest in this current one. And I, I loved one of the conversations. I got like all giggly when we started talking about it last week was your upbringing, um, Brandon, but in particular, your earliest (laughs) memory of you negotiating with your dad, who is a Superman in that regard. So, And kids Uh, negotiate all the time. So what was that experience like? Well, you know, I, I, looking back on it, I I have to admit, I I feel like I was taken advantage of slightly because, you know, I was probably eight or nine years old and I'm, I'm, I'm negotiating with this, you know, this, this world renowned (laughs) hostage, you know, hostage negotiation guy. Right. And, and didn't really know what I was getting into. Right. Cause for me, he's just, he's just my dad, right. To everybody else, he's this special person, but, and, and not that being a dad isn't special because it is, I think, you know, for all, for all men that have had the, uh, the opportunity to do so. But, you know, at the end of the day for me, right, he's just my dad. So uh, it was when the, the first PlayStation came out. And I don't remember the year, but I do remember very specifically when the first PlayStation hit the market and like how, how big of a deal it was. And, and, you know, I was not, you know, I think a lot of people probably assumed that I was a spoiled child because I was, I was an only child. And that was not the case at all. I think, that, you know, the looking at it, it was much more like I wish I had siblings so I could blame things on other children. Right. Because it's like when things get broken in the house, there's no question as to which child it was. Right. You can't you can't you can't escape the uh, the the uh, the punishment. There's no way around it. So and, and you know, I was I was I got to admit, I was lucky. Both my mother and my father, you know, they, they instilled really good values in me as a kid and. And, uh, you know, both of them worked really hard. I mean, the other thing about, I think people don't think about, you know, being a hostage negotiator, it's a great job. How much time does that person actually spend in the home? You know, and and so, you know, growing up, I had great parents. I didn't see them that much. You know, I was a very independent, you know, a very independent child. But anyway, back to the story, you know, I was, PlayStation came out and I really wanted it. And I, and I wanted, I, I went to my dad and, you know, I was, you know, Hey, you know, can I write the classic child question, right? Can I have, or can I do? And of course he shut me right down, right? No, you can't have that. And they, like I said, they didn't, they didn't give me a lot of material things. You know, I, at that point I still had like a Nintendo, the original Nintendo. And I think I had a super Nintendo. And so, uh, you know, I didn't have the, the Sega, all the Sega stuff, the things that came out. Right? I never got any of those. And he said, look, you know, if you want to if you want a PlayStation. You have to figure out how to cover it on your own. Or at least, you know, more than 50 percent. And if you can't reach any further than that, then I might help you out with the rest. And I, and I got to admit, looking back on it, you know, we talk about in negotiation and business. Right. Don't get too tied to a hope strategy. Right. Plans of the future. Like, oh, if you come do this business with us, all this other stuff will open up for you down the line. Right. That's something to be very careful of. And it's a constant 
uh, pitch, right? And it's more so you're tr- trying to tie you to hope of the future of things that can't be guaranteed and being careful about that. And, I, and in this case, right, if you can cover more than half, then I might help you out with the rest. I feel like he was tying me to this hope-based strategy or future. But like I said, you know, we, we have a good relationship and, and I did trust him. So uh, I can't think of the name of the franchise, but it was before GameStop. And, and for those of you that don't know what GameStop is, they're basically classified as a video game pawn shop. And, and even on paper, legally with the government, they are they are actually a pawn shop because they buy games and they trade games and trade different equipment. So I can't remember again, I can't remember the name of the franchise before GameStop, but it was that one. You know, one in back way back in the nineties, right? It seems like such a long time ago now. And so went there, I took my place, my uh my Nintendos and, and the games that I had and my controllers and it was my first experience with them, so I thought it was going to be worth a lot of money. And I had cash in hand, and I, I don't remember exactly how much they gave me for my old game systems, but it wasn't very much. You know, the, those those stores don't—they <laughs> don't give you a lot of credit for those those old systems, right? They want to sell them at a profit, so they don't—they don't buy them for very much. And I got—I got the little bit of money from that, and I had the little bit of money that I had brought with me, and I think it was probably a little less than half. But my dad, being being a good dad, you know, he saw that I went through the effort of of doing everything I could at that age to to obtain an item that I wanted for myself, and and he helped me out with the rest. And and I guess looking back on it, while it was a negotiation, very much so, right? You know, can I? No, you cannot. <laughs> it was it was an opportunity for him to teach me a bit of a life lesson. Like I said, both my parents, I think, instilled good values in me, and that's in addition, that was a, a good life learning lesson. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, this is Fei Wu, and you're listening to the Face World podcast. Today on the show, meet Brandon Voss, who is the son of Chris Voss, author of Never Split the Difference, and a two-time Face World podcast guest. Brandon is the director of operations for the Black Swan Group, founded by Chris. Together, as father and son, they teach hostage negotiation skills to solve business negotiation problems. that story. And when I first spoke with your dad and we didn't really spend too much time talking about, I didn't ask questions specific to parenting um, or his parenting skills or his kids. But, you know, part of me was thinking, oh, he better, he better has a daughter. I can see him being so gentle on, on her, you know, and trying to take care of her and will say yes to everything that she, she has. And then, you know, I realized how proud your dad is uh, of you and your name has come up so much so naturally. Uh, and, and I was really in a way surprised. I feel like there's definitely tenderness to whenever your name and your work uh, comes up and he's so proud of you. I want to maybe have you kind of talk to our listeners about when you've decided to join um, the Black Swan group and what was that sort of process like? Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, it'd be great. And and as a side note, I'm, I think it's probably better for my dad that he didn't have a daughter because I think he'd be he would be putty in her hands. I think it was it was easier for him to be very stern with his son. <laughs> so as a side note. Um, but yeah, as far as starting to work for him, 
Uh, I was I got into sales at a college. Uh, I did I did retail sales for Macy's, and I also did some business to business sales for Verizon. You know, in both places. You know, started at the bottom, right? Did doing a lot of quote unquote grunt work, if you will. And uh, around the time I was getting out of college and going into sales, Chris was retiring from the FBI. And he, you know, it's always kind of been a lifelong dream of his to to run his own business. And I think something you and I might have talked about last week a little bit, but you know, we come from a bit of a, a long line of entrepreneurs. You know, his his dad, my grandfather, was an entrepreneur. My grandmother's father, uh, great great grandpa, he was he ran a, he ran his own business. He ran an international harvester franchise in the Midwest and. And so, you know, we come, I think, I think it's in our blood in a lot of ways. And even, you know, even myself as a teenager visiting DC to see my dad, I, I had a, I had a yacht detailing business in, uh, you know, at 14 years old in Southwest DC and I had, a, I had a crew of five. So I think, I think it's in the blood. And I know when he got out of the bureau, he wanted to have his own business. So he comes out of the bureau, he goes right into Harvard. And while he's up there at Cambridge, he decides to put Black Swan on paper. You know, sees a lawyer and makes it official and uh, and things like that. But he's not actually doing any business really at the time because he's still going. He's still going to Harvard and and, and getting his uh, his master's and things. And they liked him so much. For those of you that read the book, they liked Chris so much as a as a uh, student that they brought him back as a teacher the following year. Right. Which is another thing that I think is really cool about his story. I don't know how often that happens in, in places of higher learning like Harvard where you're so good as a student that they hire you as a teacher the following year. But, you know, he, he had the experience to go through that. So again, you know, another year where he's not really doing any business because he's teaching at Harvard, it's taken up a lot of his time, but you know, it's a black swan is a business on paper. As far as my end of it, uh, I started networking pretty much from within the first six months after he, he started the business, you know, I'm, I'm going to networking events, I'm shaking hands and handing out business cards. Nothing real serious. You know, I got a full-time job in sales myself, so I'm, I'm doing stuff like this on Friday evenings and Saturdays. So, uh, but nothing real complicated. Then in, in 2010, uh, a contract basically just fell out of the sky. I mean, it's, it's, there's really no other way to put it. I, I'll keep the, the, uh, the other companies we were involved with at the time uh, kind of off to the side. But ultimately, we were going to be working with a group from the Middle East to establish a hostage negotiation response team, which was something that they had never had before. Right? And this, in this part of the world, when people take hostages, they just show up and start shooting at them. And, and gunfights ensue and, and people get killed. And, and the, they realize, obviously, we, it's not the best way to do it this way. We can't show up and just have people die all the time. So let's, let's try to start our own hostage negotiation team. And this, I mean, it just fell into our laps. And while I wasn't full time with Chris, then obviously uh, he reaches out to me and he's and we spoke and we've always had a good relationship. And he says, you know, I'm basically a one man show. Uh, you know, you didn't have any employees, right? He's still kind of teaching Harvard at this time. You know, what what can you do to help help me out here? And and so that was back in 2010. And I came on full time with him uh, at that point. You know, I wasn't going to leave my dad out to dry. Right. It's, it's, he's got a big business endeavor and, and he needs little hands. So I, I was going to be there. And I started very much at a logistical capacity, you know, just handling a lot of back office stuff, uh, you know, lining up uh, trips and, and the logistics for the contract in 2010 were pretty extensive. It was it was a contract that was going to last the whole year. 
the business that we did with this particular group was the only business that we did in 2010. We didn't actually do any other business, and it, it was because it kept us that busy. There was even a, a segment of that contract where we brought the group to the United States for about four months, and we did a tour within the U.S. to different law enforcement um, agencies so they could meet people, you know, see how they do it in their part of the country, see the equipment that they use and things like that. And so that, that took up all of 2010, and, and it was a really good learning experience for us. You know, we made some good money. We learned some good things, and then we also we, we fell on some some hard times. I mean, we, we learned some really tough lessons that year that, for all intents and purposes, also contribute to our negotiation doctrine today. You know, this whole idea of yes is nothing without how and, and no deal is better than a bad deal, you know, that, that comes from our experience in 2010 and, and different things that, that we went through. And, you know, after, after 2010 was over, he started working as an adjunct at, at Georgetown University, uh, uh, McDonough School of Business in the MBA program, brought me in as basically a kind of a TA. And I slowly started to teach that class. And then when he went to USC, when he moved to the LA area and started teaching MBA program at USC, there were actually several semesters when I taught as many classes as he did. We basically split it in half. And uh, although I wasn't officially on the professor roster, I did a lot of pinch hitting for him. And, and those, those were good experiences for me. Not only give me some teaching experience in, fr- in, front of a, in front of a live audience, but you know, we, we learned a lot from our, our college students, if you will. And, and, and it's really tough to call master's program people college students because they're generally working full time and they got kids anyway. But we learned a lot from them. that, And we actually use a lot of their examples today, even when we teach. But you know, starting big time with them, 2010, and things have continued to grow and evolve along with my my own experience and expertise uh, all along the way. Mm. So first of all, for the record, as you're saying, you started off in uh, in logistics, and then you you did a lot of operations. I must say that those things are so important and incredibly time consuming, and it's. It's so tough to find the right person or people to do the job. And I know that intimately well through my own business. You have to find people with the right set of skills and people who are ready to deliver, to ship, to to be reliable. So I, there is a lot to unpack. I I just went through, as you're talking, went through a period of intense listening. So I, I heard that you said your previous experience in sales and marketing. So I think maybe that wasn't a coincidence that your dad kind of brought you in at the beginning of any business. Granted, your your dad was already known, you know, at Harvard, well networked, but still, for him to start a new business, perhaps that people haven't heard of the Black Swan Group or don't really know how Chris, in this case, is going to transition to doing something new or doing something he's used to. So, I think tell us about like how you two were together or separately went about marketing the business? How did you just articulate, describe it and really get new business in the first place? That's, that's a, I think that's a great question. And, and I, and I will tell you that, uh, while, while I'm, I'm probably a little bit better marketer than my father is. And in all intents and purposes, I should be right. I, I, uh, I, part of my college stint, I spent in a, in a business school and, uh, you know, he was a government worker. Right. And, and one thing about working a government job is they don't teach you about how to survive once you're out of the government. Right. You don't learn <laughs> new world skills 
being a government employee, unfortunately, you, you learn how to do your job. And then when they're done with you, they kind of show you the door. And, and, and another thing, too, about being part of this team, I'm also confident to know that if, if my father didn't think I could do the job, he wouldn't have hired me, you know, which is another thing why, why it was much easier for me to take the job, because I knew it wasn't like I'm his son and he's offering it to me because I'm his son. You know, he's 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 got a large Rolodex of people. And there's a lot of people out there that would love to work with a guy like him. And so the the list was it wasn't exactly a short list. And so, I, you know, I think it's very cool that he that he turned to me. And, and I think that a lot of my previous experience did help as far as from a marketing perspective. One thing that really kicked this off early on was just, you know, phrases that really hit home for people. You know, those those kind of sexy phrases, if you will. And, uh, you know, there is always leverage was a big one for us uh, early on. I mean, is that we got a lot of mileage out of that phrase, there is always leverage. Because from a negotiation standpoint, you know, people are constantly worried about their leverage, right? What, what dictates you know, compromise or capitulation in a negotiation context? The person that's going to compromise is probably the one that feels like they have the least amount of leverage. You know, for there's something inside them that says, I have more to lose than they do. Or you're at the table and you have that you very much have the feeling of, you know, they don't need us as much as we need them. And then that's what forces people to compromise. Again, it's a human nature response. It's an emotional compromise is an emotional response. You know, you're hoping you're gonna get something else, you're hoping it's gonna lead to something better. You know, it's 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 very much emotional. So the the, the ideas around leverage really helped us kick things off early on. And then uh, very shortly after that, you know, uh, along the lines of kind of a mission statement, but we, you know, we use hostage negotiation techniques to solve business negotiation challenges. And one of kind of the, the underwriting pieces of that is, you know, in hostage negotiation, there is no compromise. You know, for those of you that have read the book, if you're on the phone with a hostage taker and he's got four hostages, you can't say, oh, I'll, I'll take two, you keep two, right? Everybody's happy and we all go home, right? There, that is not actually an option in that case. So the you know bringing those same the same communication techniques where you're constantly building rapport and building trust even with a hostage taker yes or a barricaded suspect and then how that leads you to a place where you don't have to compromise your position to make a deal. And and what I love and both you know Derek Gaunt who's another uh, expert instructor of ours he's a former crisis negotiator with Alexandria PD is an integral part of the team these days. One thing that he loves to say is that he was in sales for 27 years with the, the police department. And what he sold people was jail time. And he had buyers every day of the week. And a lot of that, again, is big. You know, you mentioned the relationship side of things earlier. That's a big component of that. So from a, from a marketing side, you know, getting people to understand that our, our, our approach to the negotiation process was different than they'd probably ever heard of before. And of course, a lot of that is because it's it's rooted in hostage negotiation in this world of of compromise not being an option. And then, of course, you know this emotional approach, emotional intelligence approach that we take to negotiation, and then using key emotional words that are tied to negotiation and leverage is one of them. Hi there, it's me again. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I hope you were able to learn a few things. 
If you enjoy what you heard, it would be hugely helpful if you could subscribe to the Face World podcast. It literally takes seconds. If you're on your mobile phone, just search for Face World podcast in the podcast app on iPhone or an Android app such as Podcast Addict, and click subscribe. All new episodes will be delivered to you automatically. Thanks so much for your support.